ask you a question. How do we, how do we navigate a broken world, seemingly more broken by the day? I mean, it's obvious we live in a broken world that things are not working quite rightly. I'm not talking politics, although we could, not laying our national brokenness at the feet of the Republicans or the Democrats. I'm not talking about uh, science and environmentalism, laying it at the feet of global warming or climate change, fossil fuels and hamburgers. Not talking about capitalism and socialism, although I certainly have my own personal thoughts about that. I'm not talking about the Constitution, the Second Amendment, gun violence and assault rifles, although some would no doubt like it if I, if I would. I'm not necessarily even talking about mass murder, abortion, racism, inequalities, and the like, although we would be getting a bit closer to the core issue of our collective brokenness. Now, I'm talking about the brokenness of humanity from the very beginning of time. Beginning uh, in, the, in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve uh, created in the image of God with freedom of choice, used that freedom to disobey God, plunging humanity and this world into its corresponding wholesale brokenness. That is sin and all that sin drug in with it, sick, sickness, evil, disease, darkness, death. Even creation itself, the universe, is subjected to futility, Paul tells us, waiting for the sons and daughters of God to be revealed. But until that, until that revelation, things are broken, not working rightly. It's the story of the Bible, the story of all stories. Some call it the meta-narrative. God created this world perfectly, placed people into a perfect environment, but we rebelled, plunging us into ruin and destruction. But God, because of his great mercy and love toward us, did something about our lost and pitiful, hopeless condition. So, so, so get the narrative. He created, we rebelled. He stepped in to redeem and renew through the work of his son. And so now we await the consummation of all things when all will be made right. I, read the first two chapters of, of the Bible and, and the last two. In the first two, humanity is in a perfect garden. Walking with God must have been glorious. In the last two, many of those elements will reappear. There's a new garden, a new creation, when God will once again dwell with his people. There'll be no tears, no death, no mourning, crying, or, or pain. These things, those first things will have passed away and all will be made new. And for that, we long. But for now, we are in what songwriters today like to call the in-between. Between the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and his glorious return. And the world is still broken, all the while amazingly opposing the remedy. The good news that Jesus died to bring. And so we, with creation grown, awaiting final redemption. And we, like the souls under the altar of Revelation 6, ask, perhaps frequently, maybe this week, how long, O oh Lord? In the meantime, we trust and we love and we follow and, 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 and we believe, albeit perhaps imperfectly. And it is that hope that keeps us going. But here's a further question for us this morning. 
in all this brokenness, do we just grin and bear it? Do we put up with brokenness and sorrow and pain and loss and, and sickness and death? We just, just put up with it, with ridicule and opposition and suffering and persecution. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows my sorrow. Or does God have something else in mind for us? Why are we still here in this mess? Is there a purpose to all of this? Let me make it a bit more personal. Maybe you're here this morning barely putting one foot in front of the other. Could be family challenges, relational, health, financial, job challenges. Could be you have an annoying neighbor or an annoying roommate. It could be opposition for your faith, which is actually what Peter is addressing in this letter that we're studying. And so if you were honest, you would say you dragged in this morning hoping the music, the pounding of the drums, the depth of the bass, the strumming of the guitars would cause all of your troubles seem so far away, at least for the moment. A word from the Lord, a welcome from a friend, a hug from a brother or sister in Christ before you go out into the brokenness and the darkness. Is this just a weekly pep rally? I want to encourage you this morning with this truth. Jesus is coming back. And at the revelation of Jesus Christ, when the sons and daughters of God are revealed, all will be made right. This is our hope. And that hope is so great that we can actually find joy right now. We have begun a study of 1 Peter. Apostle Peter is writing to believers in Asia Minor who are suffering, struggling for their faith. And he writes to encourage them, to remind them of this great salvation that they have, that Jesus is coming back. So do more than just endure. He's actually going to tell us to rejoice greatly. You remember last week we saw that 1 Peter 1, 3 to 12 is actually just one sentence in the Greek, can be easily divided into the following three parts. Praise for salvation, suffering in salvation, and the prophecy of salvation. Last week, we looked at that first one, verses three to five, after reminding his readers in his salutation that they were incredibly, through the work of the triune God, chosen by God the Father, sanctified by the Spirit, sprinkled with the very blood of Jesus Christ. After offering them a blessing of grace and peace, he can't help He can't help himself. He breaks into praise for this great salvation. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance, imperishable, undefiled, will never fade, uh, reserved in heaven for you who are protected. Are you listening? Who are protected by the power of God through faith in a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is great news. God is to be praised because he caused us to be born again to a living hope, an eternal inheritance, and a future salvation. But there's a cost. You know that full well, don't you? Because all that is promised, even guaranteed, in the midst of a broken world in which we live in the in-between And so Peter goes on in our text this morning, verses six to nine, to say this, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now, 
for a little while. If necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, this faith, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, I love this verse, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible, full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Does that sound like good news? You see, it doesn't seem like we're just supposed to grin and bear it. It doesn't seem like we're just supposed to keep a stiff upper lip. Yes, there are times that we groan. There are times that we don't know what to pray. And the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. There are times that we grieve, we mourn, we experience the pain and sorrow of the loss of living in the in-between. But the overall Are you listening? The overall characteristic of our lives is this. In this, we greatly rejoice. Does that describe you? Outline of the text goes like this. There there, there are trials in salvation resulting in the proof of our salvation. So we persist in salvation, receiving the outcome of salvation. Look at verse six. In this you greatly rejoice. In what? Lots of discussion, but most agree this refers back to what we looked at last week. Verses three to five, this great salvation, which has given us a living hope, an eternal inheritance and a future salvation. And so we bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy caused us to be born again. And so we greatly rejoice. That that word only appears two other times. In Luke chapter 10, where Jesus greatly rejoiced when the 70 he sent out to do gospel ministry came back with a good report. In other words, when, when Jesus heard the results of gospel ministry, he greatly rejoiced. And then it appears again in verse eight, we just read it a moment ago, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible. That's not future, that's right now. What I want you to notice is this is great joy, great rejoicing that springs from within. I've said this before and is not dependent on our outward circumstances. That is so important. Remember who his readers were. These people were were suffering, struggling for their faith. Circumstances can can bring us down. Circumstances can bring momentary happiness. I could be happy, for example, the Mountaineers won last week, but that happy only lasts until they lose. I I could be happy. I just got what I wanted for Christmas until it breaks or gets too small to wear. Ever increasing problem for me. Or becomes outdated. I mean, be honest. How many of you still, don't raise your hand, how many of you still have a flip phone? Don't admit it. Or an iPhone 4. My son works for Apple. He's trying to convince me to get the, the, the Apple Watch 5. I'm going, what was wrong with 1, 2, 3, and 4? There's always something else. External stuff and even events can bring momentary happiness. And, and that's great. That, that's wonderful. But joy, you see springs from an eternal salvation that God purchased through the gift of his son. And nothing, we looked at this last week, nothing will ever change that. Imperishable. It will never fade. It's undefiled, incorruptible. 
My joy springs eternal, you see. Notice you greatly rejoice even though now, for a little while, and maybe this is the part you can identify with, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Look at each word or phrase because they are incredibly important. This is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time. You greatly rejoice even though, meaning in the midst of everything that is going to follow in the following verses, you still can greatly rejoice because of the verses that we just looked at. Meaning we don't have to go through life forcing ourselves to smile and be happy. We go through despite life's inevitable challenges with great joy. Hear me, we Christians should be the most joy-filled people because we of all people have the most for which to be joyful. Sometimes Christians can be the most down-in-the-mouth people. I think it was Oliver Wendell Holmes who once said that he would have been a Christian if Christians didn't look so much like undertakers. We'd have been the most joy-filled people. People ought to look at us and the joy that we experience and say, I want some of that. Even though. Even though now for a little while. How long's a little while? I don't know. Uh, how long the trial lasts. But what usually, what if it lasts a lifetime? Might. I don't say that flippantly. It might. But what is a lifetime of 60, 70, 80 years compared to eternity? This is what Peter means here. The, the little while isn't necessarily days or weeks or months or even years. It's a relative term in terms of of what awaits. It's a comparative term. This eternal salvation. This is just a little while. Paul says the same thing in 2 Corinthians 4. JP read it for us earlier. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light Afflictions. It is incredible that he would write that in chapter 4 because in chapter 11, he's going to list what those momentary light afflictions were and it was terrible. But they are producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. You see, it's a relative term. Compare this life and its challenges with the life to come, there is no comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, who cares? but of the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal. That is within time and therefore temporary. But the things which are not seen, that's going to become really important in verse eight. Those things are eternal. Where do we fix our eyes, you see? And so as followers of Christ, yes, we face distressing various trials. If necessary, what does he mean, if necessary? It means that trials are not necessarily the lot in life of all believers all of the time. It's a bit like a proverb. A proverb is, not, is generally true, but it isn't always true all of the time. Same here. We are going to see that these trials come with a purpose for believers. They are not haphazard and not without direction and the control of the sovereign hand of God. And yet he, we will see that he uses these trials to mature, to perfect, refine, and humble believers. So I want you to think about that, to mature, perfect, refine, and humble believers. Is that sometimes necessary for you? So the if necessary is true, isn't it? 
James says it this way, consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, the exact same words that Peter uses, knowing that the testing of your faith does something. It produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect results so that you may what? There's a purpose. Be perfect, that's complete, mature, not uh, uh, lacking in nothing. We may face various trials that bring distress, but through them all, God is faithful and faithfully performing his purposes in us. But we need to talk about this various trials thing. Because this is going to flow through the rest of the book. A careful reading of the book makes clear he's talking about opposition or persecution because of your Christian faith. It's for doing good in the name of Christ. And it is for sharing your faith in Christ. It is not, I want to say this very gently but very clearly, it is not necessarily the result of living in a broken world. Just because you get a flat tire does not mean you're suffering. Unbelievers get flat tires all the time. It is not necessarily experiencing what everyone experiences because, again, we live in a broken world. It is not even necessarily sickness and disease and death. We'll come back to that. It is because, Peter's point is it's because we are Christians and we live like Christians. Look at some verses in 1 Peter. Chapter 2, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, that's the unbelievers, so that in the thing in which they slander you, your excellent behavior as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation, the day that he perhaps visits them for salvation. Further in chapter 2, what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? You're getting what you deserve. But, but, but if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ suffered, also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps. What did, what did Jesus ever do that was wrong, that was bad, that was evil, for which he deserved suffering? I mean, he just went around healing everybody who needed healing, preaching the good news of the gospel, providing the remedy for their sin, and they killed him for it. So also, we follow in his steps. Chapter 3, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you see, you are blessed. Keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, for your righteous behavior, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better if God should will it so. We'll talk about that when we come to it. If God should will it so, that you suffer for doing good what is right rather than doing what is wrong. So, so clearly suffering is because of what we do in the name of Christ. Chapter 4 makes it abundantly clear. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with, with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers for doing evil, a murderer, thief, evildoer, or troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, because you bear that name, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. What name? Christian. 
I think we get the point. The various trials in First Peter had to do with persecution, opposition for our faith, for doing good in the name of Christ, and for sharing Christ, the remedy with sinners. But this begs some very important questions, which we will come back to through our study of First Peter. The questions that I perhaps that I know you perhaps have. First is this: Why is it that we in the West have not suffered? much, if at all, for our faith. You see, the first Sunday of next month, November 3rd, is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. And you know that our brothers and sisters are suffering around the world. Why don't we? I would suggest some thoughts. It is true that much of the West was Christian, if you will, in the past. And as a result, Christianity was widely accepted and respected. That does not mean that all or even most were Christians. It just means that Christianity was acceptable. And so it was okay to name the name of Christ. And in fact, many did, right? Dressed up, went to church on Sunday morning. That's what it was seen as a positive family value. But things have changed. And Christianity is not so much in the mainstream anymore. But it is still largely tolerated, but that's a key word, tolerated. You see, inasmuch as we stay in our lane, not seeking to promote morality or worse to impose our morality or proselytize, we're fine. Because you see, two of the key words in our new Western culture are, are these, tolerance and pluralism. We should tolerate everyone, even if our faith Our Bible does not. And there is a sense in which that is true. But we must rightly define tolerance. Tolerance does not mean affirmation. While you may have the civil right to your own moral choices, that does not mean that I have to affirm those choices. And that is where we can and do get in trouble and run afoul of this strongly held cultural value. If I hold an objection to, to behavior, then, then I will be called intolerant. The other key word that fits with that is pluralism. Pluralism is, of course, the idea that many faiths lead to heaven. Many faiths lead to God. The, the, the problem is Christianity, by its very nature, is exclusive, It claims that the remedy to our problem is Jesus himself, the son of God, God in the flesh. And his work on the cross alone can reconcile people to God. Christians are then not pluralists and therefore as a result we are seen as intolerant, bigots, arrogant. You see, we do proselytize. It's called evangelism because we believe Jesus is the only way to God. Jesus himself said it. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. And because we love people, we we tell them the good news of Jesus, which includes the bad news, that people are sinners and and need Jesus. And that gets us into trouble, you see. It, It gets us opposition, and I believe ultimately very soon persecution. It will separate the professors from the possessors. Which leads to another thing that I will say about this idea that we don't suffer for our faith. First, yes, we were in the past largely Christian, or at least 
a Christian affirming culture, we are no longer. So, so second, if that is true, and I think that it is, and I think you would agree, it's possible we are not opposed because we fly under the radar or we have been assimilated by our culture. Consider those two words. It is becoming increasingly challenging to not affirm certain moral practices. And I'm not just talking about the one that, you think, that you're thinking of right now. I'm talking about any immoral practice. If we don't aff- uh, affirm it, we're, then we're called intolerant. Nobody wants to be called intolerant. So increasingly, people who call themselves Christians are no longer holding to clear biblical positions. Don't want to be intolerant. Second, to believe in the exclusivity of Christ for salvation, again, sounds so arrogant. And so we have been silently molded into pluralistic thinking. And many have stopped evangelizing. And, we start, and we've started using that nasty word proselytizing. And, and we've even begun to question whether or not it's even necessary And survey after survey reveals that people in evangelical churches think that there are other ways to get to heaven besides Jesus. If that is true, then let's quit. We're wasting our time. Let me be clear. We've not faced opposition in the past because of the widespread acceptance of Christianity. That is changing. And perhaps... We are not being opposed today because we are not bold. We have become timid, or worse, we have been assimilated into our culture, adopting non-biblical positions and no longer sharing our faith. So, you can fly under the radar and avoid opposition, or you can live as a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ, and it will cost you. And then First Peter and the rest of our study will apply. Let me share some other quick thoughts. I am suggesting the various trials in 1 Peter are primarily found in opposition to our faith. But what about what else sin drug in with it? What, is, what are we to do about sickness and disease and, and, and demons and, and death? And I, and I think our, even the evangelical church has become largely confused about that. Let me ask you this way. Are we suffering as believers because of sickness? Because of death? How about demonic attack? Those are great questions. Let me address the demonic attack first. Yes. Peter tells us that the devil, like a roaring lion, prowls around seeking someone to devour. So Christians, because they are Christians, can face demonic attack. I believe that. I do not believe that Christians can be possessed by demons, but I do believe that we can be oppressed by demons. And in fact, I believe that you are. But what about that other one that everyone always wants to talk about? What about sickness, disease? Sickness can be the result of demonic attack. Read the book of Job. Or you can go to that, uh, that, that young man that after Jesus came down from the mountain, that, that young man who was possessed by demons and was thrown into the, he would throw him into convulsions and throw him into the fire. Yes, it's possible that sickness is a result of demonic attack. Or 
It may be because of some specific individual sin. See James chapter five. You see, if you go to James chapter five, you read that if you are sick, you would call for the elders of the church who are to anoint you and, and, and pray for you. And in the middle of that discussion, James throws in this kind of weird idea that you're supposed to confess your sins to one another. Why? Because it's possible that there may be some specific sin that is causing your specific illness. Sickness may, it may be the result of sin generally. I mean, we live in a broken world, but it may also be the result of sin specifically. But, but, but again, the book of Job makes it clear that that's not always the case. So does John chapter 9. John chapter 9, there, there's this man who's born blind and the disciples ask that question, who sinned, him or his parents, that he was born blind? What was Jesus' answer? Neither. Further, I would say that death, the answer to that question, is ultimately the result of living in a broken world filled with sin. Your sin. The wages of our sin is death. But, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. But to be clear, G Peter is not necessarily talking about sickness or disease and death. That, it, that is not to say that we do not suffer as Christians in that way, but that is not his point in this book. In fact, one of my commentaries says, uh, rightly points out, in other words, we have been arguing that the New Testament takes a different approach to illness than to suffering. In fact, he spends pages talking about how th that, that um, suffering uh, and affliction are two particular Greek words and, and their family of words and illness or, or sickness is, is a completely different word that Peter never uses. Where illness is mentioned, he says, it is approached with prayer for healing and in the overwhelming number of instances, that is just what happens. Did you hear that? Read through the New Testament and you find most of the time when people approach Jesus for healing, he healed them. Guess, guess what happens in the overwhelming number of instances in the New Testament when we pray for healing? Guess what happens? We get healed. The exceptions to healing are simply indications that one does not control God. Prayer is still faith, not magic or human reward, but where suffering is mentioned, it is seen as part of the conflict of the Christian with this broken world. That's suffering, not sickness. That's suffering. An identification with the suffering of Christ and as a means of developing the Christian virtue of endurance. Peter is going to talk about suffering for our faith. Why don't we suffer? We need to deal with that question. Leads to my second point. I know out of time. I'm done. Why from a divine perspective, are we opposed for doing good in the name of Christ? Why are we opposed for sharing the gospel? Because darkness has never liked light. They will oppose you just like they did Jesus. But, but what is the purpose of, I get the purpose of Jesus suffering. This is pretty good for me. But what is the purpose of my suffering? He tells us in verse seven, we are distressed by various trials so that, that's a purpose clause, the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though your faith tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
Don't miss it. God sovereignly allows trials in our lives to prove the reality of our faith. Our faith is more precious than gold. At that time, as throughout much of time, gold was considered the most precious of metals, still precious today. Your faith, worth more. And just like gold is tested by a metal worker in the crucible of heat, so also your faith of greater value, infinitely greater value, is also tested by fire. When gold is tested, fire is added, impurities are then burned off. So also your faith is tested by fire so that impurities may be burned off. Gold ultimately perishes. Your faith never will. So don't miss it. Much like the metal worker tests the purity and purifies the gold with fire, so also God tests the purity of your faith and purifies it and strengthens it. That's what he's doing. I want you to think of something else. When the metal worker puts the ore in the crucible, do you think he wants to find it impure? Oh, I've got this ore. I think I'll put it in here and show everybody how awful it is. Oh, no. He's hoping to prove that it is of greatest value with little to no impurities. So also, when God tests us, he does so with a desire to strengthen and purify our faith. He does not want us. He does not test us wanting us to fail the test. The, the, the word for, for testing actually means to test for the purpose, get this, for the purpose of approval. Proving to you that God is real and your faith in Christ can be trusted. He is maturing you. He's making you complete. He has your best in mind. Finish with this. When your faith is tested, purified, proven genuine, it will result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is when Jesus comes back. Now, here's the question. Who gets the praise and glory and honor? The phrase is somewhat ambiguous. Some, I think, rightly suggest that we will receive praise and glory and honor when Jesus returns. Well done, good and faithful servant. There are plenty of verses which indicate that to include this particular book in chapter five. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Paul suggests the same elsewhere in many different places. But all of our faithfulness, all of our endurance is to be attributed to the sovereign work of God through the Holy Spirit in our lives. So ultimately, all praise and glory and honor redounds to him anyway. The point is, suffering is for our testing. It's for our proving. Ultimately, for our good and for his glory. It is not meaningless. You do not have to go through this life with a woe is me, nobody knows the trouble I've seen attitude. No. Christians should be the most joy-filled people on the planet. He knows what our struggles are for. He knows what he is doing. And his gifts toward his children are to bring greatest joy.